one of the things I love about Genesis is so many of the foundational teachings of Scripture come out of Genesis. So much of the history of, or the history that we see in the Bible makes sense because of Genesis. And so we are walking through, especially the beginning parts of Genesis, and I don't know when we'll end it. Uh, I'm not going to do all the chapters of Genesis, uh, but we will, we will walk through the beginning and uh, see what God says. So in verse 10, we're at verse 10, and uh, that's kind of where we stopped last week. It says there, now what has happened up to this point? The serpent has come in. The serpent uh, deceived Eve. Eve ate of the apple. This is the quick version. Eve ate of the apple. She gave it to her husband. Adam ate of the apple. And now they are in a place of sin. Their eyes have been opened. They realize their shame. They realize their sin. And now God has entered into the garden. And Adam and Eve hid themselves. First of all, they made fig leaves, clothing with fig leaves, if you want to say. And now they've hidden themselves because they hear God. And in verse 10, it says there, God said, or Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. It's an interesting thing here. It's an interesting thing that Adam, even though he had made clothing, recognized that he was naked. Okay? Even though he had made fig leaves, taken fig leaves, and they'd sewn it together, he recognized that he was naked. You know, one of the things that these fig leaves represent for us today or examples of potential fig leaves in our lives in the church today and even in our Christian life is that is our efforts or our trying to stand in our own strength or our own ability to please God. How many know you can't do it in your own? You cannot make God happy on your own. Okay, lots of times as Christians even, we think that we can somehow please God by our activities. We think, you know, I I hate to say this as a pastor because some people take it, but church going doesn't make God happy. Going to church doesn't make God happy. Okay? Yes, you are to go to church because it's to build you up, it's to strengthen you, but it's not like God, like I say, God doesn't have one of those charts that are in Sunday school, you know, Pastor Chad went to church today. Let me give him a star. And, and you know, at the end of 10 weeks, I get like 10 stars and I get a prize. You ever remember that? Well, I, I agree. I don't have a choice. I'm the pastor. Yes, I agree. But you know what? Uh, that's not how God works. Church going, religious exercise, laws and rules, you know, even our own personal charitable ideas and thoughts and things that we do, good and all that. Those things are, in a sense, wonderful and beautiful, but they do not please God in the sense that give give us favor before the Lord. And that's really what the fig leaves represent here, is that Adam tried to cover his own nakedness and tried to basically put himself in a place of righteousness before God by covering himself, and it didn't work. And Adam recognized that. 
The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not by our works. We are not saved, we are not called by our works, but by his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, think about this, before the world began. So sin made Adam afraid of God's presence and afraid of God's voice. And ever since Adam, people will run from God's presence and don't want to listen to his word or listen to his voice. And the reason is because the light of God overwhelms the darkness of sin. Sin cannot stand in the presence of God. Sin cannot stand the confrontation of it as it is exposed by God. You know, that's, why, that's why we're seeing in our world today a lot of the things going haywire. That's why you, you look at the world today and you say, man, some of the things that people say are so illogical. The problem is this. They are trying to get away from the light. People will move into the place of darkness, even into the place of illogical arguments over many of the social issues and the things that were happening in our world today because they know that if they, if they walk in a place of the light, they will be responsible for it. And it will only get worse. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. John 3 and 19 says, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, and man loved darkness rather than light. How many see that today? People love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest or in case his deeds should be exposed. People rather live in sin because they love sin and therefore they reject God, they reject his word, they reject his voice because God and his word bring accountability. You see, Adam knew that when God walked through the garden, Adam was was naked. Adam knew that, and now he became accountable and responsible before God. Now the good news is this. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess what? Our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news. Okay? We don't have to walk in a place of condemnation. We don't even have to look and, 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 and walk in a place of, of, of if you want to say, say shame before God in the sense that there is no answer to it because God is providing an answer to us for sin through Jesus Christ. And God just wants us to come before him and take responsibility in that. So that's kind of where we left off last week. Verse 11 is God's response to Adam. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, let's get real. God knew the answer. Okay, He knew that Adam had eaten of the tree. But God confronted Adam's problem directly. And this wasn't a clothing problem. It wasn't even a sin problem or a fear problem. This was a sin problem. 
and basically Adam's wardrobe and his fear in his recognition that he was, a, was naked could not be addressed until the sin problem was addressed. God, in confronting this, was bringing Adam into the place where he could confront his sin because God had a solution for it. We all have sinned. The Bible says that we've all sinned. The Bible says that if we say that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. We have to recognize and realize where we start from. Adam needed to recognize and realize that he had fallen. The Bible also says that in Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses, confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Adam had to recognize the state that he was in before the solution could be presented. Adam also had to realize that he could do nothing, that he didn't have the solution to his sin problem, but he needed someone else to come in and fix and bring the solution for him. So God confronted Adam face to face and said, what have you done? Did you do what I told you not to do? It wasn't because God didn't know the answer. God was just trying to bring out Adam and say, hey, Adam, hey, take responsibility. Look at this. Now we see his response, <laughs> which is so typical. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me, <laughs> she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's interesting. God's not even addressed Eve at this point. He's not talking to Eve. He's talking to Adam. And Adam turns around and blames his wife, which is, by the way, completely consistent with human nature. No? It's my, I mean, I see it in, well, I see it in my marriage. I, you know, sometimes with my wife here. She's out with the kids. Good. You know, sometimes I blame her. It's like, you may be, no, I, I did it all my, but I also see it in my kids. You know, a mess happens on the floor. What are the girls? RJ did it. RJ did it. He might have helped, but you started it. It's human nature. For us to turn around and try to put blame on somebody else. Not only does Adam unfairly blame, unfairly blame Eve, but he refuses to take responsibility. And think about this. By saying, the woman that you gave to me, who's Adam essentially blaming? God. You say, you gave me the woman. She's the problem. And Adam threw it back basically towards God. I'm glad God is gracious and merciful. It's interesting then in verse 13, the Lord said to the woman, 
What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Sometimes people portray this as the woman trying to put the responsibility on, on the serpent. I don't think so. I think she was just saying this is what happened because that's literally what happened. She was deceived and she ate the fruit. What she didn't recognize was the problem of being deceived. The Bible talks about in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 that they turned the truth of God into a lie. And people are not taking responsibility for that today. She didn't take responsibility for the deception that led to her sin. And there's an application for us today that warns us of Scripture or in Scripture. And it talks about in the last days in 2 Timothy that evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus even said, beware lest you be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, not do, do not go after them. I am telling you today that we need to know what God's word says because we are living in a time and an age when there is great deception in our world. And that deception will only increase. And if we do not have a confident understanding of what God's word says, we will be deceived. We will walk in a place of deception. And by the way, that is a responsibility of us. You can't just turn to God and say, God, I was tricked. I was deceived. I don't take responsibility for this. No, we have to understand God has warned us not to be deceived. Jesus has warned us not to be deceived because there are those who are trying to come into our lives, into our world, into, into our society and bring deception and bring destruction. And you and I are responsible because God has given us his word. God has given us his spirit. God has given us his truth. You and I are responsible to know those things and to hear those things so that we are not deceived and falling into sin. We're not even to go after those things. Not even to go after them. I mean, the Bible even says, uh, I was talking with the young adults on Friday night, just teaching them out of Galatians, and, and think about what, what, what Paul says. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, and I know that he was talking about the laws and the religious Jews of that day. But he says, even if these an angel from heaven preached to you another gospel, then what we have preached, let them be accursed. We need to be very careful today of what we listen to. We need to be very careful today of what we allow to come into our minds and into our hearts so that we're not deceived. So we see God speaking to Adam, God speaking to Eve, and then we come into the place where God begins, begins to respond or give the results of what's taken place. And in verse 14, God looks to the serpent and speaks to the serpent and says this, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above every beast of the field. You will go on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It would appear, obviously, that in Scripture prior to this point that the serpent had legs. I don't know how it looked. It would just appear that way. And that God cursed the serpent to degradation, disgrace, and defeat. The fact is that the serpent was cursed more than any of the cattle or any beast of the field. But God is also not only simply cursing, if you want to say, the animal that's reflected there, but God is really speaking, and in verse 15 you actually see God speaking to the devil or Satan himself. And this is actually, this verse is an interesting verse because it's kind of known as the first gospel. Revelations talks about in verse in chapter 13 and verse 8 that the lamb who was slain from or the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. I know I've said this before but I'll say it again today. Oftentimes Christians think that when the fall happened God was somehow up in heaven and thinking, "Oh no, what do I do now?" Well, let me send Jesus to save the world. No, listen, God had the plan in place before the foundations of the world. He knew what was going to happen, and in his wisdom and power, set it up so that we could be saved. The death of Christ lies in the purpose of God, and that was set in place before even the very world was created. And so God begins to reveal this in Scripture. God begins this revelation of what he's planned to Adam, to Eve, to those there, even to Satan himself, and he he, he predicts the hostility, or he predicts the continual hostility between Satan and the woman, representing all of humanity, but he's also, he's also predicting the fact that Satan and the seed of the woman, or Satan's seed and the seed of the woman would have hostility. But I want you to understand today, or today to understand this, that Satan is out to destroy all of humanity. If he could... He would do that in a heartbeat because he is a thief. We heard the prophetic word this morning. You should take that to heart. God is pouring out of his goodness upon his people. God actually is pouring out of his goodness upon the world, even though we see all the evil, even as we see all the corruption, because God loves us and cares for us. God wants to move in our hearts, move in our lives. But listen, we have an enemy, and that enemy is Satan, and he is a thief, he is a murderer, he is the one who goes around looking to destroy whoever he can. And so there will be a conflict between Satan and humanity, but there is also the conflict between Satan's seed or offspring, which are his agents or his kingdom, if you want to say, and her seed or her offspring being Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. 
And God here actually begins to tell us of what his plan is. And he says there that Satan in turn would bruise the Messiah's heel. The heel wound here expresses the suffering and even the physical death of Christ. But how many know that even though Jesus died on the cross, it was not the ultimate defeat? I don't know. I don't know what, you know, I I get sometimes a picture of what maybe Satan thought when Jesus died, and maybe he thought, yay, I've won. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know this, that God knew it ain't over. Because Jesus would crush the devil's head, a mortal wound bringing ultimate defeat. You see, the Bible says in Colossians 2 and verse 15, and having disarmed authorities and powers, he made a show or he made a spectacle of them openly, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus suffered on the cross. Yes, he even died, but he rose from the dead and he is victorious over sin, hell, and the devil. And let me tell you something this morning. He is victorious in your life. He is victorious in your life. He is victorious in your life. You do not have to walk in a place of defeat. You do not have to walk in a place of discouragement. You do not have to walk in a place of shame before God because God through Jesus Christ has set you up to walk in a place of victory. You see, that's why I don't worry about what's going on in the world. I mean, sometimes I'll talk about it, but I really don't worry about it because I know how the story ends. It's interesting here that we see the love and kindness of God in promising the Messiah before he even states or before he even declares the sentence or the sentence of of judgment in the next couple of verses. God's going to bring about his judgment. God's going to bring about and say, "This this is the curse that has come upon you. But he's already, before even that, he's saying there's hope. Sometimes as Christians, we should take that attitude with those who are unsafe. We should take that attitude with some of our political leaders. I'm not saying we have to agree with them. We should take that attitude with people that are around about us that are frustrated with, realizing that God loves them just as much as he loves me. God wants them saved just as much as he wants me saved. I mean, yes, Trudeau bugs me. Physically, naturally, I would look at him and say, you know, he's not a very brilliant man. I'll put it nicely. (laughs) But you know what? God loves him as much as you and me. God wants him saved as much as you or me. Biden, God loves him just as much as me.
Just a thought. So God gives hope. But also God has to pour out justice because he's a just God. So in verse 16, we get to his sentence, if you want to say. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your chain, or I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The first one is obvious, and I've never gone through it, thank the Lord. (laughs) Pain in childbirth. He will multiply that, but it also carries, think about this, because it also carries the idea that women would experience in pain or experience pain in regard in bringing up or bringing forth or raising their children. It's not just simply the activity of of going through birth, but it's also speaking of the activity or the passion or the love or the hurt, you want to say, that many times women feel because of their children in life. It seems to impact ladies more than fathers. It also says there that your desire will be for your husband and and he will rule over you. We know as scripturally the husband's role is as the leader and the ho- of the home and the family. But I, I, there, there, there's something here that, that really that needs to be looked at and addressed. There is no doubt in scripture as to whom the head of the home or the family is. But I want us to understand this morning and realize that this verse sets up the context for all other verses in Scripture related to this topic. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, some people will say, but I, I would have you know that the head of the woman is the man, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. We must understand that that verse must be read in the framework of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 because that's how God set it up. So, no, men in general are not the heads over women. Men in general are not the head over women. Males are not the heads of females. It is the husband that is head over the wife. That's what Scripture is saying. I am the only male head over my wife. The only Man, my wife is responsible to submit to is me. She's not responsible to submit to anybody else, just me. There is no male head over Alicia. She's not married. She's single. (laughs) She raised her hands. She doesn't, she's not responsible to submit to any man. Now, yes, she lives in my home, so she submits to she submits to me as she's living in my home. But ultimately, if she decided to move out of my home and live on her own, she is responsible herself. She doesn't have to submit to any man. A divorced woman is not submitted to a man. And it cannot work in any other way. 
Some men think they are the head over women, and that's absolutely not scriptural. Because the only man, as Scripture says here, and sets it up, who a wife is called to submit to is her husband. And that's important for us to understand because we get so much sometimes in the teaching in the church of regarding this, and it's like we wonder why sometimes women, if, if you want to say some people understand, why do women kind of balk at this? Well, because it's not scriptural. And it, by the way, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't work logically. But guys, let us understand the rulership is not unlimited and it does not mean that a man should not submit to his wife. There's an interesting passage of Scripture that says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But do you know what it says after that? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. That's why the Bible says in Romans 2, verse 4, do not, do you despise the riches of his goodness, tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God wants to pour out his goodness upon us. And the reason is because in 2 Peter chapter 3, in the second part of verse 9, it says, God is patient with us because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. How should it work in a Christian marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. I like that verse. Amen. For the husband is head of the wife, just as Christ is the head and Savior of the church, which is his body. But, the church sub but as the church submits to Christ, so also let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it would be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, in this way men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It's interesting there that we have a comparison. Christ over the church. Christ over his bride. The husband over his bride, over his wife. And let me say this very clearly, ladies. Your response of submission is required as per Scripture. But understand this. Your response of submission should be done as an activity of service unto the Lord. And by the way, this also gives the conditions of submission. This is not unconditional submission. Some people, some men have turned around and said, oh, but it says they let the wives be submissive to their husbands and everything. Haven't we heard that in the church in the world today? Oh, the church needs to be submissive to the government and everything. So when they tell you to close the doors, you close the doors. No, there is not unconditional submission. 
You see, wives, you are part of the church. Your first responsibility is to submit to God. Submission to the Lord, yes, should bring submission to your husband, but submission to Christ also overrides any submission to your husband which is in conflict with God. So if your husband asks you to behave or to talk or to do anything or to put up with an activity or behavior that violates God and his word, you are not bound to listen to your husband. Amen? So if your husband wants you to lie for him, no. If your husband wants you to do something that is against Scripture, such as not go to church, no. So if your husband wants to abuse verbally or physically, no. We submit as unto the Lord. He is our first place of submission. Now, it's interesting. God gave one command to the woman. He spoke like one line or two lines to the woman. He spoke a whole bunch to the husband. Husbands, if we want to be king, we must remember what the king of kings did and that he became a servant. Christ gave himself for his bride. Christ gave the best for his bride. So should we. And I'll readily admit, I got, I'm still a work in progress. Amen, babe? <laughs> I'm a work in progress. And, and my wife will readily admit, she's a work in progress. But man, we shouldn't abuse, we shouldn't bully, we shouldn't be harsh. We should protect, we should honor, we should lift up our, and build up and minister to our wives, to our families. We should put her needs ahead of ours. It's interesting that he said that we ought to love our wives as our own bodies. He even gives that kind of as a reflection of somebody who doesn't love his wife in that sort of manner. You could almost question, do they love themselves? And by the way, this whole aspect of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 and these verses need to be brought into the context of when we're talking about women speaking or preaching in the church or usurping authority in that context, it must be reviewed in that context as well. Otherwise, we're taking it out of context. The church is not to, in a, the church is not in oppressive bondage to Christ. 
Wives are not to be in an oppressive bondage to their husbands. Women are not to be an oppressive bondage to men. So we see here God's response to the woman that you'll have pain in your childbearing and child raising. You'll be in submission to your husband. And then God turns to Adam, verse 17, and he said to him, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I have not, or which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground on account of you. In hard labor you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring, bring forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, because out of it you were taken for you were you are dust and to dust you will return man was sentenced to earn his livelihood from the ground that was cursed and it was his responsibility it was his fault all of nature all of the world all of nature changed at this point we even know that the bible says in romans chapter 8 that the whole of creation groans and travails in pain here it's talking about that it would be a grind it would be difficult to work. It would, be, it would bring about sweat. There had to be effort to be put in. It should be noted that work itself is not a curse. What did God tell Adam at the very beginning? That he was to tend to the garden. So work is not a curse. How many feel that way on Monday morning some days? <laughs> work is good. Work was always involved in God's kingdom. Adam was not going to be somebody who's just sat in a lazy hammock all day for, for all of eternity in the garden and just lay there. No, God expected Adam to work. But he says, now your work is going to become very difficult. And it's going to be with sweat that you're going to accomplish it. It's going to involve sorrow. It's going to involve frustration. It's going to involve exhaustion because now all of creation is impacted because the death or the curse, the curse has been placed upon it. And he says on top of it, death would come. Remember, he says, if you eat of this tree, you will die. And in fact, he says, and then you will return to dust. You'll return to dust. And we see that. Verse 20, we're, we're almost there. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Up to this point, the woman was never called Eve. You ever notice that? She was never called Eve. We are so used to sometimes saying Adam and Eve that sometimes we even put it in the verses. We'll read it into it. And we assume that that's her name. But to this point, she's only called female. Adam named her Eve, even though at this time she was not the mother yet. She wasn't even pregnant yet. But Adam in faith, I believe Adam in faith, trusting God, would bring forth a deliverer through the woman because God has promised that already, is, is speaking that forth. And he names her Eve, the mother of all the living. 
Verse 21 says, Then the Lord made garments of skin for both Adam and Eve and his wife and clothed them. God wanted Adam and his wife, Eve, clothed, not naked. But in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, a sacrifice had to be made. An animal had to die. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Adam and Eve were clothed with a garment, think about this, that was bought or was paid for with the life of another. You and I today are clothed with the garment of righteousness that was purchased for, purchased for us through the life of Jesus Christ. Some might wonder or say this, are Adam and Eve in heaven today? The Bible says God clothed them, which seems to indicate, this is just my opinion, it seems to indicate that Adam and Eve walked in a place of faith. Adam had faith in God's promise of a Savior, and God provided a covering for them through a sacrifice. So, my opinion, I believe so, but that's just a thought. Final verses. The Lord God said, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, he might, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of light and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which, from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, Satan gave some deceptive truth. He says there that you would know good and evil, but now they are in a place of shame, nakedness, and sin. But God protected Adam and Eve from the horrifying chance of being living forever in that state. That's what would have happened. If they would have eaten a tree of life, there would have been no salvation. They would have lived perpetually and eternally in the place of sin. That's why the devil who has, if you want to say, eternity set. That's why when he fell, he couldn't come back. There was no, he was already made eternal. So when he fell, he couldn't repent. But God protected Adam and Eve and said, oh, we're not going to let you get there. It's interesting that he, 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 God took him out. In fact, he drove him out and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden. Cherubims are always associated with the presence and glory of God. A cherubim often marked the meeting place with God. So I wonder if God put that there, one, to guard the tree, but also as a place for Adam and Eve to, if you want to say, come to, to have a meeting place with God. Just my thought, just my speculation. But it's also interesting that this is the last historical mention of the Garden of Eden in that sense in the Bible. We can speculate whether God destroyed it or not. I will say this, it was destroyed in the flood. It was all gone in the flood. But we see through Genesis chapter 3, why we are in the state that we're in today, why the world's in the state that it's in today. 
all the things that we see happening today is because of what took place in Genesis chapter 3. But we have hope in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.